welcome to the second episode of the new podcast series from Understanding Society, the longitudinal study that captures life in the UK in the 21st century. Each year, Understanding Society questions every member of thousands of the same households across all four countries of the UK. We ask about education, employment, family life, health, income and civic participation. And since April 2020, we've been asking about COVID-19. Every answer to those questions becomes part of an ever-growing complex data set that tells a multitude of real-life stories, unfolding in real time and unlocking the causes and consequences of social change. It's data that provides evidence for debate and ultimately change. In each episode of this series, we'll explore how understanding society data has been used in a key area. We'll look at what it told us when analysed and what it's informed as a result. I'm Catherine MacDonald, your series host. In this episode, we're focusing on income and expenditure and research that used understanding society data to take a longitudinal look at universal credit. My first guest is Tom Waters, Senior Research Economist at the Institute for Fiscal Studies. My second is Kaylee Hignell, Head of Policy for Families, Welfare and Work at Citizens Advice. I began by asking Tom to explain universal credit, what it is, what it replaced and what the thinking behind it was. Before 2013, which is when universal credit started to be rolled out, the benefit system for working age people in the UK was comprised of a number of benefits and so six crucial ones uh, there are three which were aimed at those who are out of work there was housing benefit aimed at low-income renters and then you could get tax credits as well which paid partly to those in work and partly to those with children and so there was this kind of combination to some extent i'd say a bit of a mishmash of benefits and people were often entitled to two or three of them at once and what universal credit does is it brings those benefits all together into a single payment so there's just one application, then you get one payment a month, and the, the system is uh, more integrated. And so what was the thinking behind it? Was it simply a streamlining process, or was it much more complex than that? Firstly, certainly was streamlining. The old system was a bit complicated. You're on multiple benefits at once, had to make multiple applications, and the benefits sometimes interacted with one another in a slightly funny way and and so in that sense it was a streamlining or kind of rationalization and then the second thing which is somewhat related to the first as well was the government was keen to get rid of the very weakest work incentive so it could be under the old system particularly if you're a lone parent you could be getting a housing benefit uh, working tax credit and child tax credit so three these three benefits and when you earned an extra pound you would see some of that pound lost in tax, you know, income tax, national insurance, and you would see your benefits, your housing benefit and your tax credits withdrawn as well because they're targeted at lower income people. So when your income increases, you get a little bit less. What that meant was, was that there were some situations where when you earn an extra pound, you could lose 96p in lower benefits and higher taxes, um, which is pretty weak incentives to do more work. And so part of the rationale for universal credit was to get rid of these very weakest work incentives, which it, it does do, although it should be said, you can still lose when you earn an extra pound, you can still lose 
75p or so in higher taxes and lower benefits. So can you tell us what you looked at in your research on universal credit and why it provided something of a new perspective? A lot of research on benefits policy focuses on what what we sometimes call distributional analysis. So how does it affect rich households versus poor households? How does it affect different family types, lone parents versus couples or whatever? And that kind of analysis is typically focused on looking at people in a snapshot. So you you take a survey of UK households at a given point in time, and you say, okay, if we made a change to benefit policy now, how would it affect their incomes right now? But that basically only tells you part of the story because obviously people's circumstances aren't fixed. People move in and out of work. They have children. Children grow up and leave home. They go from being singles to couples or vice versa. They move their housing situation. Lots of ways that people change. And so that kind of snapshot picture doesn't necessarily tell you the whole story. And this can actually matter in distributional analysis because when you look at in the snapshot, the very poorest people, not surprisingly, are those that are out of work. But actually, it turns out that for a lot of people, that's quite a temporary state, and they'll spend quite a large fraction of their life actually in work. And so you kind of get a slightly distorted picture if you only focus on their situations at a given point in time. So what we did, we used the Understanding Society data to look over a bit of a longer period. So we were looking over eight years. It's obviously not a whole lifetime, but still a period which allows us to look at some of these transitions that you see. And we said, okay, what would the universal credit system do to people's incomes when we measure their incomes over the course of a whole eight years, as opposed to just at a point in time? So we used something called a a micro simulator. Uh, So what that is, is it's essentially a giant calculator that allows us to calculate benefit entitlements and tax liabilities for households in survey data. So essentially, we take a household from from a survey, say from Understanding Society, and uh, we know how many people there are and how much they earn and how many kids they have and what their rent is and things like that. And then we pass that over to the calculator and the calculator says, OK, they'd be entitled to this much in benefits, they have to pay this much in tax. And then we can say, OK, well, what if the benefit system was different? So what if we had the universal credit system, for example, rather than the legacy benefit system? And then we can compare how, you know, a reform like universal credit, how that would change people's incomes. And so what we did was we used this big calculator, this micro simulator, we use that on the Understanding Society data to calculate what people's incomes would be under the old system and what it would they would be under the new system, under universal credit. And then that allows you to, to look at the effects of the reform. So let's move on to look at the findings. Who were the winners under universal credit? The one big group that gain over universal credit are renters, but particularly working renters. So that tends to be because if you're in work and you're a renter under the old system, you can see your benefits withdrawn, both your housing benefit withdrawn and tax credits withdrawn for every extra pound that you earn. Under the new system, because it's integrated together, you don't kind of have those two losses going on at once, if that makes sense, as you increase your earnings. And then, then the groups that tend to lose include those with significant assets, uh, the self-employed, and to some extent, homeowners lose a little bit as well. So do you think universal credit is helping the right people? So whenever you're thinking about benefit policy issues like this, part of your considerations should certainly be kind of the economics of it. But also, unavoidably, you have philosophical issues. You know, what should the benefit system be doing? What kinds of people should it be helping? And so I, I see that as kind of partly at least a philosophical issue. And, you know, I don't 
have a professional view on that. What I would say about universal credit relative to the legacy system that it replaces is universal credit tends to take money away from people that are in the short term, in a snapshot, poorer, but in the long run are a little bit richer. And so one good example would be those with significant assets. So under the old system, the legacy benefits system, if you're out of work, say, but you still had a significant amount of money in the bank, you could still get some benefits. You could get child tax credit. Whereas under universal credit, often you wouldn't be entitled to anything at all. So when we look at things just in a snapshot, we see someone that's out of work, has you know no income, uh, and they look very poor. And so universal credit looks like it's kind of taking money away from someone that's on a very low income. And, that, and that's kind of right. It's important to keep that in mind. But it turns out that, that people, perhaps not surprisingly, with a significant amount of assets, are higher income over a longer period of time. So it tends to be for this kind of reason, that universal credit takes money away from those that are in the short run poorer, but in the long run tend to be a bit, a bit richer. So those with significant assets is one of these groups, but also homeowners and even the self-employed actually also, when you look at them in the short run and they're poor, it, they're likely to be a bit higher income over the longer run. So the pandemic has had a massive effect on the amount of people claiming universal credit. What did that do to the system and and how did it cope? Yeah, it it was really a pretty sharp change. So uh, before the pandemic, you had something like two and a half million or so families that were claiming UC and it went pretty quickly up to about four million, eventually peaked at sort of four and a half million. I mean, that's a really big change. And a lot of that happened in a very short space of time. So I think there was a two week period where there were a million claimants to universal credit. And thankfully, uh, something that we should definitely be grateful for was the system didn't fall over. People's applications were processed. There were definitely some hiccups in that, for sure, uh, with people struggling to get through to DWP and so on. But it was actually possible for people to, to get their new benefit entitlements. So what, what that has meant is, is there's now a lot more people on university credit than we would have expected 18 months ago. So the number have been slowly creeping up as, as you see replaces the legacy system. But then overnight, there was a, a big ramping up. I I think there's a a number of things that are kind of interesting about this as we go forward. One is that a lot of people actually will have had contact with the benefit system who who never have before, perhaps wouldn't have expected to. Um, And so that's going to be interesting to see whether that changes, for example, changes attitudes towards benefits and towards poverty. Uh, Another important factor is simply the fact that it causes universal credit to be rolled out more quickly. Um, I think as as well, the consequence of pandemics, it's changed a little bit as well, the group of people that we normally think of as benefit claimants. So a lot of the new claimants have been single people without kids. Um, And typically we think of the benefit system, a lot of what it's doing is actually supporting families with children. And so that's going to create a bit of a a, different picture, perhaps some challenges for DWP as we go forward, because... It's, it's kind of a different cohort, if you like, to what we're, what we're used to. So we now know that the £20 uplift to universal credit offered during the pandemic has stopped. What do you think are going to be both the long and short term consequences of that? In the short term, what it means is that the sort of four million or so families that are on universal credit now will see their income from one month to the next will fall by £20 a week. Now, that's a fairly large share of benefit entitlements. So on average, it's about 11% of claimants' benefit entitlements. But that, but that actually masks quite a lot of variety. So if, for example, you're a single person, don't have any children, you don't pay rent, you know, either because you live with someone else or you own your own home, with the, the uplift, 
you get about 95 pounds a week. And with, so without the uplift, you get 75 a week. So for those, for that group, it's, it's an even larger percentage of their income. So in, in a short run, it means, yeah, for, certainly for some groups, quite large declines in, in their income. Over the longer run, it's a bit harder to say. In general terms, we, you know, we, we tend to think that if you increase at least out of work benefits, that tends to weaken work incentives. And so people might respond to that by being less likely to be in work. But uh, at the same time, there's going to be plenty of people who are in work who are still entitled to universal credit and will see their, their incomes fall as well. So I think those kinds of longer run consequences are probably a little bit harder to, to tease out now, but the kind of thing which we yeah, we'd certainly want to um, uh, keep an eye on going forward. And is there a disconnect between the current cost of living and what universal credit can offer? Benefits in general, by default, go up every year with inflation. And the idea of that is a very sensible idea, is that we want to maintain people's real terms standard of living. Now, the, the kind of the catch is that it only happens once a year, it happens in April. And so if there's a quite sharp increase in the cost of living, as you know, inflation is increasing now, and there's certainly concerns that increase even further, that won't immediately be reflected in people's benefit entitlements. They'll have to wait all the way around to, to April before they see their benefits go up. So certainly in the, in the short period, those kinds of spikes in, in inflation can really cause problems. So to summarise, two questions really. Is there such a thing as a perfect benefit system? And how does universal credit fare? So if you were putting the pros next to the cons of universal credit, what would those two lists have on them? I definitely think there's, there's, not, there's not a perfect benefit system in the sense that any choice you make about benefit policy embodies trade-offs which you simply can't get away from. And so I think of it as a three-way trade-off. If you increase the value of benefits, you can direct more money towards poorer families, but it tends to weaken work incentives. And number three, it increases the cost of the system, which then has to be paid for by higher taxes or lower spending elsewhere. Where you personally end up on that trade-off is going to be partly a consequence of your political beliefs about you know, what, what the role of the state is in, in, in redistribution and, and so on. So for that reason, I think it, it, yeah, it, it means there's not really kind of a perfect benefit system. That said, I do think some benefit systems can be better than others. Benefit systems which are easy to understand, for example, are likely to be better than others. In terms of universal credit uh, and its, its kind of pros and cons, I think the integrating of benefits together clearly has some advantages. It means that it's simpler to apply for. You don't have to apply for multiple benefits. You just make one application. One actually perhaps quite important um, property of it is that you can move in and out of work as well without making a new application. You can move in and out of work uh, and your, your, your UC entitlement goes up and down accordingly without new applications being required. And I think, I think that's a clear advantage. The old system as well very strongly incentivized people to work very specific numbers of hours, at least if they were lone parents, because you had to work 16 hours to get working tax credits. We basically didn't see any, almost any lone parents working less than 16 hours if they're in work at all. I, th I, th I think that's somewhat difficult to defend. We, there's nothing magic about 16 hours. If someone wants to work a little bit less than that, it's not clear they should get vastly less money than, than, than they do at 16 hours, which is the way it worked under the old system. On the con side, the disadvantages of universal credit, one thing I think is definitely worth talking about is the five-week wait, perhaps the most famous thing about universal credit and garners a lot of headlines. 
when you make your first application to universal credit, you have to wait five weeks before you get your first payment. And the reason for that is that universal credit is paid monthly and it's paid in arrears. So the government looks at what's happened to your income over the past month and then it decides how much you're entitled to. Then once that you add a few days for administrative processing and you know that plus the month gets you to five weeks. And that, that there's there's plenty of kind of anecdotal evidence that that in some cases causes really severe hardship. People who don't have uh, savings to fall back upon and, and maybe can't borrow either formal loans or informal loans from friends can experience pretty severe hardship over that period. But it is quite difficult to get rid of the five week wait. It's not something that is just it's not that there's a number somewhere in a DWP computer that says five and they could change it to one or zero. It is a consequence of the fact that universal credit is paid in arrears and it's paid monthly. And if you try to get away from those two features as well, they, that brings up other problems. So it is quite, it's quite a tricky issue. The way the government's tried to solve it is by providing what it calls advances. They're essentially loans uh, that you can get pretty much uh, immediately after making your application to universal credit. Uh, and they, they give you a loan and, and then they recoup it by paying you lower benefit entitlements over the next year or two years. I think that, yeah, the advances system is probably a good thing to have. It still seems like there's plenty of stories, at least, of people uh, really struggling. Um, and so there's a bit of a question in my mind there about whether the government could do more to kind of encourage people to take these loans. You have to kind of opt into them. So maybe uh, people don't know about them or, 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 so, or something like that. But I think that that strikes me as, as being one of the, the major, probably the major downside of universal credit. And how do you think history will judge universal credit as a system? I think that the, the thing which drives the worst headlines about it is the five-week wait, and that probably is going to be critical to its legacy. If anything were to cause it to be abolished or replaced with something else, my bet would be it would be the five-week wait, ultimately. And some of the kind of advantages of that, I think, unfortunately, are, are, are probably a little bit difficult to, um, they're certainly not as newsworthy. I mean, something like not having to make multiple applications is a real benefit. It's valuable, but it's, it's not going to be on the front page of a newspaper. And so I think that does make it a little bit harder for universal credit to, to get a, a, a very positive reputation because it, the, the, these kinds of advantages are, are a bit, perhaps seemingly a, li a little bit more subtle, but definitely a, a, lot, less, a lot less newsworthy. One organisation that sees firsthand how universal credit is affecting people's lives is the national charity Citizens Advice. I asked Kaylee Hignall, their Head of Policy for Families, Welfare and Work, to comment on both Tom's research and how she rates universal credit as a benefit system. So this is super interesting research and incredibly helpful to think about not just the snapshot, as uh, Tom points out, but the longer term, what happens when we pull particular policy levers for people um, and see how that reform or that policy change kind of turns out in the longer run. It's particularly helpful when you kind of think about universal credit, where we're moving from looking at people in a, a moment in time. So you had job seekers allowance in the legacy benefit system, you looked at people when they were unemployed uh, and then you stopped looking at them they moved into a different system you then perhaps looked at them at that stage whereas universal credit follows people through their lives so they can move from being 
out of work to in work. They can move to a position where they need support because they're unable to work. So it's right, therefore, that when we're assessing the benefit and when we're looking at its impact, that we're not looking at a fixed moment in time. We're looking at the longer term impact of, of the benefit and of its design. What were you seeing before COVID and what have you seen since The earlier phases of rollout, we were seeing a lot of delivery issues. You might say they were teething issues, but either way, they were having quite big impacts on people. And that is because really universal credit is putting all eggs into one basket. The benefit here is that you have a simpler system, but the risk is that when something goes wrong, it goes wrong for pretty much all of somebody's income. So when we had those earlier teething issues, it was quite impactful for the people we were seeing, you know, delays beyond the five-week built-in payment weight at the beginning. But what we see overall now is some people having a relatively okay time, if not a good time, with universal credit. Digital system is helpful for those who can get online. If you're in work and paid on a regular cycle, it can be helpful. But the flip side of this is there's an awful lot of people who are really struggling with it because it just doesn't fit with their lives. When people come to you and they're on universal credit and they're having a hard time, what would you say are the top causes of that? What we've got to remember is that people are claiming the benefit because something has happened in their lives and often something that can be quite challenging. A partner has left, they've had a child, they've developed a health condition and then they've got to engage and navigate the benefit system. And whilst universal credit is simpler to access and and to navigate than the legacy system, it still is quite tricky for people. So we get a lot of people coming to us who want to understand whether they are better off or universal credit if they are already on a legacy benefit whether they're eligible full stop a lot of people worried about claiming things that they shouldn't be claiming so they want to check on that beyond that we see lots of people struggling still with that wait for their first payment the five-week wait and then struggling with the debt ramifications that they face then the consequences of taking out advanced payments which are loans for people that repayment carries on throughout their claim and lots of people can struggle with that We also see people struggling with whether things are correct. So is their housing payment accurate? Is it reflecting their actual costs? And then also people who are struggling because they're not paid regularly on a monthly basis in their paid work. And Universal Credit isn't particularly good at dealing with those situations. So we see people who can actually find their Universal Credit quite dramatically going up and down every month. So still a fair amount of rough edges here in terms of how how the policy is working on the ground. What would you say are the main rough edges of the system, just to summarise? Yeah, it's it's a good question. And, and like we discussed, the rough edges kind of have to exist. It's just about where and who experiences those. The main rough edge, I think, in universal credit is the monthly assessment of income. It is a one size fits all approach to income assessment that just doesn't work for a lot of people. They see that peaks and troughs of income. They see that unpredictability of their income. It's worth noting that it does work well for a huge chunk of people, though. So understandable why is there but it also creates all of these other problems Uh, Tom mentioned the five-week wait comes from the fact that we have a monthly assessment of income in universal credit the negative impact of that plus the negative impact of those who don't get paid monthly and have to fit into this monthly cycle says to me that that's a rough edge too far when is the point that we go actually that is causing too much of a negative impact we've got a system that 
because of that five week wait at the beginning forces a huge amount of people to basically get into debt or to increase their debt and then to continue to have to pay that off through the life of their benefit payment. Again, that feels like a significant refuge. The benefit works well if you have a little bit of savings and you can get through that five week wait. If you don't have savings and you have to take out that debt, you're going to feel the long term impact of that and the reduction of your benefits. Again, if you think about choices, we want the system to work well for everybody, but you you want it to work better for people who don't have any assets or savings because they are going to be worse off financially and going to face higher challenges. Do you feel that there is such a thing as a perfect benefit system? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with Tom that there are trade-offs in in any benefit system and, or to be honest, any public service. I do look at it slightly differently to Tom, less about the kind of financial trade-offs and more about how people are experiencing the system and how people are responding to it. Our lives are are movable feasts and uh, incredibly varied. So designing a system that works for everyone feels pretty impossible. You then move then in policy terms to go, okay, who is it going to work best for? Who isn't it going to work well for? And what's our tolerance for the negative impacts that could be experienced from trying to make it work for particular groups over other groups? So a good example is that monthly assessment. If if you're going to have a single method of assessing income, you end up with a single monthly assessment of income. And that works well for lots of people with regular earnings, but it doesn't have a neutral impact for people who don't have regular earnings or don't have monthly earnings. It has a negative impact on those people, creating those bigger, harder budgeting challenges potentially for them. So I'm not sure if you were looking at the trade-offs and where there is a more negative negative experience of the benefit that that's where you would put it for people who have less frequent or less regular income we perhaps would prioritize designing a system that worked really well for them because they have less security less predictability of income overall so universal credit has hit the headlines more recently because of the 20 pound uplift and the cutting of that uplift what are your thoughts on that and what do you think will be the ramifications of that in the short and long term yeah so it's been huge news and it's going to have a huge impact for the people that we help at Citizens Advice. I think how you view the removal of that £20 uplift kind of depends on a couple of things like how you view the pandemic recovery for one and then what you think of the brewing cost of living crisis at the moment. So in terms of recovery of pandemic, we've seen like two very different stories through the pandemic. We've seen, you know, a better than anticipated economic recovery, increased saving levels for some individuals. We've got a tight labour market. So arguably job opportunities and earning opportunities for people. But on the flip side of that, at Citizens Advice, we've seen a huge amount of people who have just about survived during the pandemic. And now, frankly, they've exhausted most of their resources or any kind of flexibility that they had. And it's worth bearing in mind that in the UK, we already had a substantial amount of people who were in problem debt. You know, this isn't debt about credit to to get something from a catalogue or the like. This is debt that we're seeing and we've been seeing for a long time now that is people's ability to pay their council tax or their rent or their gas or electricity. So if we look at like what's happening at Citizens Advice and and the people that we are helping, demand for our debt advice is up 20% compared to last year. The number of people who are are getting debt advice and then also needing advice on accessing charitable support and food banks, that's up over a third. So lots of stories there about people who are really, really on the edge of being able to pay for food, to pay for their heating and the like. 
And I, I think it's important that we think about those people, especially with energy prices going up as they are, inflation due to go up. People have to find the money to cover their costs. We are expecting quite a large fallout from the removal of that £20 uplift and already quite worried about the people who are coming to us for help. And what can be done about that? It's a great question. Ultimately, it comes down to money and providing enough support for people to deal with the spike in living costs and to help people deal and recover with debt that might have existed before the pandemic or got worse. So government have put in place some local discretionary funds to help people. They're relatively small in terms of money compared to the removal of the uplift and they have limited reach. Any discretionary system that people have to make applications through. They have to know about it in the first place, then they have to go through procedures to get that money. And we're talking money to help people pay for food, to help people pay for gas and electricity. Ultimately, those are costs that the benefit system should cover, not emergency support. We need to have a better way of looking at how the benefit system covers the basic essential costs of living. Whilst it keeps up to date in some ways with inflation, we have seen lots of reductions and cuts in the value of benefits over the last 10, 12 years. Um, and all of that is impacting now. We're seeing people who just simply do not have enough money to, to live. It's at around 40% of the people now that we help with debt. When we go through their budgets, you know, we're talking basic essentials here. There is a negative. They have less money available than their essentials. And that's before you even get into debt repayment and how do people get out of the cycle of being trapped in debt. So huge challenges there that would suggest not just putting more money into the system for individuals, but also making sure that the recovery of debt, particularly government debt, things like council tax, things like the repayment of advance payments or other uh, debt repayments within universal credit are done in a way that recognises what money is actually available to cover debts and it's kind of considerate debt recovery. And I guess that that recovery can also be sustainable. Yeah, this is it. I mean, there's a huge amount of energy, motivation and the like that gets sucked up for people dealing with individual financial challenges. And our advisors tell us this, and we've done qualitative research as well, looking at this, where if somebody is experiencing financial precariousness or financial insecurity, their time and energy is focusing on how am I going to pay the next bill or how am I going to stop that debt getting worse? How do I make sure I can cover the cost of my kids are growing and they need a school uniform rather than then looking at how do I have time to increase my skills can I change jobs can I take that risk as well as the other thing so we see people who are very very nervous once they've got to a situation where they're at least just about keeping their head above water that they're very nervous to change anything because it could dramatically worsen their situation or they could have a period of time that is very difficult for them to survive without any assets or savings. So final question then, what would you say policymakers need to be focusing on right now when it comes to any potential changes or improvements to universal credit? Do we keep rolling it out as it is or do we need to step in now and change certain things? I think the job now is to make the best of universal credit and to make sure that it works for more people. It comes back to dealing with those rough edges. It comes back to opening it up as a benefit and looking to see what is working and what isn't working. You know, we're almost a decade on from when this benefit was designed and we're a decade on from the assumptions that we used to design that benefit as well. We know a lot more now from how it has worked in practice. And we also know that our context has changed. We're, we're facing different challenges 
in terms of the labor market as it is, the security of work, things like the level and number of people who experience disability at some point in their life. All all of those things can now be considered and, and built into it. So less about very specific things that should be changed. I think we need to have a mind shift now from lock the benefit down so that we can get it delivered to let's make this the best system that we can. We're past the snagging uh, if you were, you know, comparing it to building a new house. And now we're into how do you make it work best? Um, and that requires a bit of a, cha- a change, I think, in terms of how it's thought about policy terms. We need to see it as a really positive system that could really help people. It was already helping a lot of people, but could definitely help way more uh, if we dealt with some of those my thanks to Tom Waters from the Institute for Fiscal Studies and to Kaylee Hignall from Citizens Advice. You can read Tom's research in the publication section of the Understanding Society website. Thank you for listening. Please join us for episode three in the series, where we'll be looking at the health impact of the COVID-19 pandemic.